I'm Cody Commers, and this is the Meaning Lab Podcast. We pay a lot of attention to our romantic relationships, whether it's selecting a mate or maintaining one's relationship with them. Apps make millions of dollars promising to streamline this process. Hundreds of books are published every year telling us how to do it better. And don't get me wrong, long-term romantic partnerships are hard, no doubt. But that difficulty is not lost on us. Multiple industries are designed around giving us tools to help overcome it. It's something we spend a lot of effort on trying to do better. But what about friendships? We also know they are important, sure, but we don't give friendships the same treatment as our romantic relationships. There are no holidays meant to carve out time to express appreciation towards our friends. A few books are written each year about platonic friendship, but far fewer than those about romantic relationships. And yet, friendship is one of the most important aspects of our lives. In some ways, it's even more important than the handful of long-term romantic partners we'll have in our lifetime. This, at least, is the claim made in a recent book by my guest today, Robin Dunbar. Robin is a legendary figure within social and evolutionary psychology. He is perhaps best known for the idea of Dunbar's number, the number of stable, close relationships an individual can maintain is reliably right around 150. But from the broadest level, the major question of Robin's work asks, what do our circles of friendships look like, and what should they look like? The way that I've come to think about the core of Robin's research is that we all face the same fundamental problem, limited resources, specifically limited time. Each of us has to choose how we're going to allocate our limited time to work, family, hobbies, exercise, friendships, and all the other activities and pursuits which we'd like to do. Often, when our temporal resources become scarce, the first thing to get cut are our friendships. Friendships don't come with urgent deadlines. We know our friends, our true ones at least, will forgive us when we don't see them as often as we'd like. After all, we've both got a lot going on. What all this adds up to is that the disintegration of friendships over the course of adult life feels all but inevitable. And yet, most of what is known scientifically about friendships is not generally discussed. For example, you've probably heard of Dunbar's 150 number, but that's not the only important number. There are layers here. Essentially, Dunbar's research shows there are concentric circles of friendships, beginning with your five most intimate friendships, then 15 close friends, 50 good friends, 150 general friends, then 500 acquaintances, 1,500 known names, and 5,000 known faces. There is a mountain of evidence showing that these numbers are consistent across cultures, even with the advent of social media. In other words, there is a connection between the quantity of friends that we have at any given level and the quality of relationship we should have with them. Maintaining this balancing act has huge consequences for us across all aspects of our well-being. Personally, I believe the acquisition and maintaining of friendships is one of the greatest challenges of adult life. It is especially difficult in a post-pandemic world, where we're less tied down to living in a single place and are able to work remotely. The cost of this flexibility is increased loneliness we find ourselves adrift from the usual social rhythms of life which we humans are used to. But unfortunately, the problem of solid friendships is one we spend almost no time trying to solve. Robin's book is Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. It's out now. 
If you're listening to this and have not yet subscribed to my Substack newsletter, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. That's the best place to keep up with all my work, both my podcasts and my writing. I'd really appreciate you subscribing as it's the single best way to support this show. Thank you so much for listening. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Robin Dunbar. In the beginning of your, of your book, you, you present your thesis for why friendship matters. And a lot of the evidence that you marshal on that front has to do with some pretty convincing studies, and in particular a meta-analysis, I believe, on uh, how social connection is is the single biggest factor for our longevity. So, could you maybe say a little bit about that, and you know, kind of uh, you know, present that, present that argument for, for for why friendship matters so much? So, I think one of the big surprises of the last fifteen years, maybe twenty years, has been the absolute deluge of studies, some of them short-term, cross-sectional, many of them long-term um, uh, studies, so follow-up studies, uh, showing that the single best predictor of the num- the your mental uh, health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, and even how long you live into the future is determined by one factor and one factor alone, and that's the number and quality of close friendships you have. So typically these would number about five people. We um, The collaboration with um, a bunch of people in Denmark, um, we did a big study uh, of a very, very large prospective study across 13 European countries, um, uh, uh, looking at the likelihood that uh, somebody would develop uh, symptoms of depression in the future, um, and asking you know, uh, what factors uh, predicted that, and um, the, it, what seemed to pre- preserve you from falling prey to depression um, in the future was having about five close friends and family. So if you had fewer than that, um, you tended to you're more likely to develop um, symptoms of depression. You had more than that. Uh, you were more likely to develop symptoms of depression. Uh, But there was an alternative, and that was volunteering in a social context, helping out at a charity shop or uh, being involved, I don't know, with helping running the scouts or helping with the flowers at your local church, um, uh, uh, being involved with a political party, any of those kind of things um, that were essentially social activities. So if you had about three of those, that was as good as having about five friends. And they were kind of interchangeable, but you couldn't add them together, right? You couldn't have five friends and uh, three voluntary activities and you uh, had hoped to live forever because you wouldn't. And the reason is very simple. It's the reason why having more than about five or six friends isn't really very good for you, if you like. It's that you spread yourself too thinly. Uh, among these social people involved in these social environments. So having a smaller number where you can really get to know the people and be engaged with them, that's what's beneficial. If you try and spread your load too thinly, uh, you don't create relationships of the quality that's necessary to buffer you against these diseases. And what's interesting about that, it is really completely widespread. It applies to how quickly you're 
recover from surgery, for example, as well as how often you're likely to fall sick with, I don't know, winter flu or any of those trivial things, as well as some of the less trivial things that, that beset it. Not, you know, in addition to all these psychological effects. So there's massive benefits. And it turns out we're picking up exactly the same signature in a lot of very social animals. So there's loads and loads of data now from baboons, wild baboons, from wild chimpanzees, from wild dolphins, from wild horses, uh, showing very much the same effects that, um, particularly females who are, which is where most of the work is concentrated on, females who are more socially embedded, have more friends, as it were, grooming partners, uh, uh, tend to be healthier, tend to be less stressed by major events that happen, uh, tend to have higher fertility, tend to have offspring that survive to adult or more likely to survive to adulthood than females that are less social. And there's even some nice evidence from some um, Asian macaques showing that um, peripheral, actually, no, it's dolphins. Uh, uh, in fact, peripheral dolphins and males uh, are much more likely to get hammered by predators than very social dolphin males that sort of tend to be more embedded within the 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 pod uh, when the pod is 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 out fishing as they say so uh, there are these huge huge benefits uh, that come from having friends and uh, if you uh, you know if, if you want to live long basically go out and make friends with people so when you say the key to longevity is five friends, the first thing that's like, well, that doesn't sound so hard. Uh, and yet it's a very non-trivial thing to do, make and maintain five really close friends throughout adulthood. And in many ways, uh, I feel like modern life really seems to work against this process of, of making and, and continuing these friendships throughout adult life. It feels to me like genuinely one of the most difficult parts of adult life, uh, which is why I was drawn to this work in particular, and I want to talk about it. And uh, certainly the one that it feels like like people aren't talking about as much. We all talk about like, oh, how do you you know uh, be more productive or happiness? Or at least there's lots of books on that, but there's far fewer on this topic. So why is it that modern life seems to work so much against uh, you know friendship and being able to maintain five really close friends throughout your life? Um, I, I should add uh, that the, when I say five friends, this means both family and friends. So typically that inner circle of five, we, we call them the shoulders to cry on friends because they're the little group of people at the core of your social world who will drop everything and come riding over the hill as the cavalry when your world falls apart to pick you up and put you back on your feet again. And typically that will consist of two close family members and two close friends, and then kind of an odd one to, to make up the difference. Um, <clears throat> now, we actually devote 40% of our total social effort to those five people. That's a huge amount. It works out about something close to, on average, half an hour a day, because you're not doing that necessarily every day unless you live with them. But what you are doing is, let's say, once a week, spending the whole evening with them, and that's totting up a good few hours for you. And if you don't maintain it at that level, and it's a very, very specific frequency of contact that you have to maintain, that friendship doesn't quite work like this with family relationships, which are a bit more resilient. But with friendships, if you don't keep that rate of contact up, 
that friendship will decay inexorably uh, and unavoidably. And the person will drop down through the layers of your network. And eventually, if you wait long enough, and it's only about three years that it takes, they will drop off the end of your 150, your Dunbar number, and go into the layer beyond, which is the layer of acquaintances, so the kind of people I once knew, but I haven't seen for ages. So you, you really have to keep investing in friends to keep those friendships up. Um, interestingly enough, we've just shown using telephone data, so it's kind of a telephone database that kind of predates uh, a lot of modern social social media, uh, so things might have changed now, but it's indicative that we can predict how long a friendship will last and which layer it will settle out in on the basis of how frequently somebody phoned another a new person that they just met in the first months after they first met them. It's very, very specific. If, if, if you really like them, you will phone them a lot and they will stay in that inner circle and they will stay there for much longer than if you kind of phone them just a few times. And so that's within the first month, you said. So that's specifically a finding that like, it's not this sort of latent effect where you meet and then six months later you connect. It's like if you hit it off, basically, you know, hit it off right away, that's a big predictor um, and have and, and, and what it, Of course, what it doesn't mean to say is that you may meet up again six months later and have a second bite at the cherry and go, actually, this person is quite nice. I get on quite well with them. I should have found them more first time round. Uh, you know, you, you, you might not have kind of engaged with them enough on the first attempt. Um, and so when you, you know, if you, if you're lucky enough to have a second shot at it, uh, you may find Nirvana awaits you with this, this new friend. But what that, that is simply indicative of, I think is the effort you have to put in. Um, there's an American study, um, which estimated a couple of years ago, which estimated that it takes about 200 hours of face-to-face contact with a stranger to convert a stranger into a good friend, maybe not your shoulders to cry on friends that inner circle of five, but let's say the next layer out of 15 sympathy group friends, 200 hours to devote to somebody is a lot of time and effort because you're taking that time and effort away from somebody else, basically. But I think that the issue this highlights is that you're engaged in during that first month is you're trying to suss out where they stand on what we refer to as the seven pillars of friendship. So these are like seven uh, dimensions of friendship. They're all cultural. Uh, The things you like, the sense of humor you have, the music you like, the hobbies and interests you have, the moral views you have, all these kinds of things. You're trying to suss them out on on these dimensions. Uh, And then once you've figured out where they lie and how many of those boxes they tick with you, how many of those dimensions are similar to you, then that defines which layer they will be in and you will uh, pull back on the frequency of contact with that person to about the right level for where they should lie in your sort of social solar system, if you like, which layer uh, uh, of the social network they should lie in. Um, So so that process of um, uh, uh, assessment of the quality of a friendship is really very, very important and, and 
can't be docked because if you dock it and don't do it, um, you won't have a friend or you won't have a friend that you get on with. You'll end up having disagreements and, and you know, one will want to stay in uh, and watch a film with a pizza and the other one of you will want to go out clubbing or something. That's kind of difficult to arrange a social life around. those kind of uh, uh, different differences of interest, if you like. But what it, it, it does highlight, in a sense, is that friends are born and not made. Your best friends are out there somewhere. I, I'm a bit surprised by this because I didn't think this was true. And I used to get questions sometimes from audiences, particularly younger audiences, saying, but I'm sure there's a kind of perfect match to me, my, my soulmate out there somewhere. Don't you agree? And I would say, no, 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 no. It's just the time you invest in a creates a friendship. But we've kind of realized since then that actually it is true. Your soulmate really does exist. The problem is you have to search through whatever we are now, 7 billion, 8 billion of us, <laughs> to actually find your soulmate. And that is hugely costly in terms of time. So you don't. You kind of make do with what you find. So it's a kind of, you know, you, you check out the local supermarkets and see which one is the best, if you like. So this is all, you know, classic. Jane, uh, uh, Jane Austen stuff. <laughs> I mean, she was such a good observer of human foibles and human behavior. And she has this completely down to a T. You know, so, you know, for all of us, you know, there's Mr. Darcy out there, the perfect match that we all want to, in this that particular case, marry, but might be, be a friend of. But so does everybody else. And Mr. Darcy has a choice, you know, and uh, he picks one person and one person only. And the rest of us, uh, we have to settle for the curate, who's definitely number two in terms of desirability. Um, and I think a lot of our friendships are those kind of friendships at the moment. They're friendships of convenience. They, they will do for the time being just to get us by. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just, you know, how the world is, as it were. You can't expect to have nirvana. Um, uh, first time round. So you know, they'll keep you going. And as long as they keep you going, uh, um, you know, there will be better things uh, in the future for sure. So you mentioned the seven pillars and, and I've got them here. So I'll just introduce them into the, the conversation. Um, having the same language, uh, growing up in the same location, having had the same educational and career experiences, having the same hobbies and interests, having the same worldview, uh, same sense of humor, and then same musical tastes. Uh, so those those are the the pillars that you're talking about. And my question is, so you mentioned those as uh, as well as the sort of concept of platonic soulmates, where there's matches out there that you can find and everything like that. Uh, but you also mentioned, you know, how much effort and consistency basically interaction with the person it takes to maintain those friendships. Otherwise they do drop off. So my question based off of all of that is what does this mean for, you know, what we might think of now as remote friendships. So when I think of like, you know, if I had to uh, put together my list of shoulders to cry on, so to speak, they mostly live on different continents because, you know, well, my life exists on different continents and uh, there's no doubt that that's a challenge. So I'm curious to know, uh, what's your perspective and what does the evidence say about maintaining these kinds of friendships remotely? So the evidence uh, is both good and bad because <laughs> there's no such thing as nirvana in the world. You know, uh, Everything has a cost and a benefit or a benefit and a cost. Uh, the upside is 
that certainly from our work, it seems that different media of interaction, ranging from face-to-face at one end through kind of Skype, Zoom-type in video-embedded environments through the telephone to uh, face text-based um, media such as you know, perhaps Facebook or SMSs, text, emails, that kind of thing, all of them are kind of substitutable because we see exactly the same layers with exactly the same frequencies of contact in data from all of these environments, right? suggesting that they all work pretty much in the same way and are subject to the same limitations. In other words, you, 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 Facebook doesn't create the opportunity to have thousands of, of uh, friends, true friends, um, in your social network. Um, yes, you can be connected to thousands of people on Facebook, but you're connected to thousands of people in, in the everyday world. Some of them we call them friends, friends and family. Some of them we call acquaintances. Some of them we call just people we know uh, very vaguely. Uh, we don't know much about them, but they're part of our social environment. If we saw them in the street, we'd say stop and say hello. Yeah, this is what... People who have very large numbers of friends on Facebook, a lot of those are in in that category. Yet the problem is it seems that nothing is better than face-to-face contact. Uh, Zoom, video embedded media, social media like Zoom and Skype and the like kind of do better than text-based media. and, and that's because we kind of feel like we are in the same room with the person. But it seems that there's still something missing in terms of our satisfaction of relationships executed in those kind of environments compared to those we have in a face-to-face environment. And that seems to be primarily because what's missing is touch. And that we use touch constantly with our close friends and family, perhaps out to the 50 layer of our network. So we don't kind of go around hugging strangers usually uh, or, or anything like that. We're, we're very circumspect in who we do it with. But for those whom we regard as uh, good friends, intimate friends, uh, we do an awful lot of very casual, what's generally referred to now as soft touch, so hugs, strokes, pats on the knee, pats around the shoulder, all these kind of things. It goes on constantly. If you just watch people in an uh, informal social environment, so in a pub or something like that, you see this happening constantly. And that seems to be very important in creating this sense of relationship quality. I kind of sometimes say, if you want to know how somebody really feels about you, and I don't mean that in a romantic sense, I mean it in a, uh, a platonic friendship sense, or a family relationship sense, then the way they touch you, stroke, pat, whatever, hug, is gives you a better sense of what they mean uh, or what you mean to them than a thousand words that they might say to you. And that's because words are slippery things. We're very good at saying what we don't mean and making it sound extremely plausible. Uh, but it's very difficult to lie in the way you touch somebody, perhaps because it's so so intimate. Um, so there are those kind of drawbacks, which clearly Zoom and Facebook and 
anything else you can think of, are never quite going to overcome. I just don't see how they can do it technologically as it were, because this is something about skin to skin, essentially skin to skin contact. Um, that said, um, uh, I think in the end, you know, while something like being able to keep contact, well, okay, you raised the the issue actually, and that is we're so much more mobile now than we were, I don't know, even 50, maybe certainly 100 years ago when, when people kind of tended to, if they moved, uh, you know, they uprooted completely, lost all their family and friendship connections from home and, and started again in a new a new community somewhere on the other side of the continent. Um, we, 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 since the invention of the jet engine, we, we've been so much more mobile in a temporary sort of way. So we come and go a lot. It means that, you know, you can you can uh, stay in the country long enough to to build up a, a kind of network of friendships of the sort, and then you move on and you build up another network of friendships of the sort. And one consequence of that is our social networks are much more fragmented now. That is, think about traditional societies. Most countries in Europe and America, hundred years or so ago, uh, you kind of spent most of your life in one place. Um, you built up this quite deep, dense network. And the village really was the village. Everybody knew everybody else. There are still places like that. And you kind of think in the backwards, the uh, tennis, backwards of Tennessee, maybe, or up in the Rockies somewhere, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, where you have these small communities, which have been relatively stable over time. And you've got many generations there. Everybody knows everybody else. They're, everybody's 150 is everybody else is 150. You're just kind of oriented in a different different part of it, if you like. And what's happened now is for most of us who are more mobile is, okay, your family relationships are very stable. They don't change. But you, you, you have this, the rest of your network, the friends side of the network is made up of lots of small sub-networks of 10 or 15 people who you met in different stages of your life in different places. And those relationships are then very fragmented in the sense that they're uh, a small group of you know, maybe 10 or 12 people who have a relationship to you, but they don't have a relationship to the rest of your network. They have no idea who your family are because they've never met them. And they've no idea who the friends are that you met before them, wherever you were uh, before, before you went to, to their village, as it were, or the friends that you met afterwards. And so these your networks have much less cohesion and in integration. And that's some loss, I think. I mean, people who live in small villages, grow up in small villages, always complain that your life is never your own. You know? Your neighbours know what you're doing all the time. And you can't go out doing something because your parents are going to find out through somebody else. Um, and they complain a lot about it. But actually, the comfort that creates for you overall far outweighs these disadvantages. And this is why people like the Hutterites and the Amish uh, in the Dakotas and, and in Pennsylvania, respectively, in the U.S., keep their communities small. But they deliberately keep them below 150 so that they have this village intimacy, as it were, so that it's much more supportive. So there are costs and benefits, you know. Um, some people like being more independent, <laughs> not having too many nosy people checking up on what they're doing, which is fine if that, you know, that tends to be extroverts. 
Other people like to be much more embedded in a social environment and feel more comfortable and uh, feel they benefit more from, from doing so. I guess, you know, those will typically be introverts, but the world is, comes in those two kinds. And that affects dramatically how your social network works because introverts tend to have smaller social networks, smaller Dunbar numbers than extroverts. And this is, and give each one more time. So they both have the same amount of time to give out, social capital to give out to their friends and family. But introverts seem to be risk averse and they want their relationships to really work when they need them. So they're prepared to invest much more heavily in each person and have fewer people as a result in the network. Whereas extroverts perhaps get a buzz from meeting lots of new people. So they tend to have bigger social networks. The difference is about 100 to 150 in introverts and 150 to 250 in extroverts, something like that. Um, and extroverts seem to rely on their kind of social confidence to get by if someone stands them up. So an introvert will feel devastated if they ask somebody to help them out and they say, no, I'm too busy. An extrovert will just kind of go, okay, I'll go and ask somebody else and not be too fussed about it. You know, And that's you know, those are our personality differences. We 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 all vary in these along this kind of continuum, and it f- affects our social world, if you like. But there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, either of them, they're both equally good ways of solving the uh, problem of um, living in this complex social world we live in. And uh, you know, don't try and be an extrovert if you're an introvert. Enjoy being an introvert, and vice versa. Is my advice. There's a, a a line of reasoning in there that I want to pick up on, and I think it has to do with your recent uh, co-authored paper in Nature Human Behavior on social isolation and the brain in the pandemic era. Uh, so certainly we had an anomalous social experience during the COVID years, and also just more generally with a you know switch to remote work and outsourcing more and more of one's social interactions to online all the drawbacks potentially that you identified with those, for example, lack of touch, all of that sort of stuff. What do you think the role of loneliness is in modern life? And how does that play out for us today? Oh, I I, um, think the role of loneliness is basically an alarm bell. As uh, John Cacioppo, the uh, neuroscientist, late neuroscientist, um, pointed out, suggested, you know, it's an alarm bell ring saying you're not meeting enough people. Get out and do something. <laughs> Go find a friend. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's not very good for you, loneliness, because uh, basically it exposes you to the risk of increasing downward spiral of depression. And that has knock on consequences for physical illnesses as well as uh, mental health and well being. Um, so it really is kind of the signal or a reminder to for you to try and do something to 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 um restore your your social environment of course that the problem is of course that's not easy to do and this goes back to the mr darcy problem uh everybody else has already got their 150 friends um you know if they're going to give space to you um that means they've got to drop somebody else it's it's a tough old world out there and particularly Okay, so in the in the inner circles, the five and fifteen layers, that's a real 
sacrifice that that has to be made. We we, we see that in romantic relationships, which uh, we can maybe come back to. Um, but uh, uh, what you're lo- having to look for really is is um, somebody who's in the same boat as you and got some room to spare, uh, 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 enough to 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 allow the two of you to to spend time together. So it's not an easy problem to solve. And I think that's the great problem. And that's why you end up being tipped into this downward spiral. And, and, you know, we've suffered from a pandemic of loneliness, particularly in the 20 somethings age cohort for the better part of 30 years now. It's really surfaced in, in the big cities in terms of people having their first job after leaving university. So your whole life up to that point has basically being cocooned in a ready-made social environment. At school, uh, you had a kind of bunch of people uh, who would make perfectly decent friends, uh, and and they're there. Uh, Your family is embedded in a wider community who also have children. You're used to sort of having potential friends on demand all the time. You go to university, you live in a a student halls or something like that, or a college, if you're at Oxford, Cambridge. Um, They're a ready-made community. It might be a little kind of bumpy to begin with while you just get your feet under the table, as it were, but very quickly you build up um, friendship circles because they're there 24-7 and you're seeing a lot of them. And then suddenly you get a job graduated you get a job in in london new york i don't know los angeles wherever and you know nobody you don't even know where to go to meet people and all the people at work who are the only people you meet regularly already have their sexual lives sewn up you know some of them have got families they want to get back at five o'clock uh to their families they don't want to go out partying with 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 the newcomers um even the ones that don't have families, they've already got their friends and and, and circles and, and and the things they do on a on an evening with them. So we've had this tendency for uh, these sort of the newcomers, as it were, to businesses and de- government departments and whatever, uh, thrown in completely at the deep end with with nowhere to go, and it's caused this pandemic of loneliness with these knock on consequences of increasing depression, time off work, illness, whatever. It's not good for the employers. It's not good for you. Um, And, you know, everybody's been looking at this going, oh, we've got a problem. What do we do? But nobody's had any solutions. The solution is easy. Make the work environment a social environment, which is what they used to be um, until perhaps 50 years ago when new management practices came in. Uh, Most most big companies had their own social clubs, their tennis clubs, their theatre clubs, their football clubs, um, where uh, um, uh, people hung out after work. And and that was kind of created this sense of belonging and a sense of community. And of course, when you came new to that company or, or business or whatever, you were thrown straight into this social environment where... It was a. It was safe. Everybody knew everybody else. Everybody was on page. They all shared a lot of their seven pillars of friendship in common, simply by being employees in that same environment. And and it was a good place to make make friends. And we don't do that anymore, uh, by and large. Some some companies is starting to do so. Facebook has uh, kind of been moving in that direction in a, a very encouraging way, I think. But not many, I think. And. Um, 
therein lies this problem. Uh, we can't let it continue because it's not good for business and it's not good for individual health. So your solution there is essentially further integration of, of work and life. Uh, but here's an alternative that I'm curious to get your perspective on. Working less. So this might you know, require a bit of speculation on this front, but h- how much better off would society be if we all agreed to work five less hours during the week and, and dedicate that time to connecting uh, or finding, uh, you know, friends? Uh, I'm sure it would be infinitely uh, beneficial, um, but there's, it's not necessary. You have to do that outside work. You could do that in, in the work environment if you wanted to. Um, in the sense, I mean, it just goes back to the fact that you have to remember, or we should remember, but we have forgotten that the world of work, let's say the workplace, is a social environment. It's a village, and how efficiently it works depends on how good the relationships among the members are. This applies to football teams, soccer teams, as much as to anything else. You can always tell how well a kind of Premier League soccer team is getting on uh, socially by how well they do on the field because they play better together. They know where each other are without having to look because they just know how each of them thinks because they've spent so much time in each other's company off the football field. Um, So those kind of elements, you know, are what we might consider exploiting. The question is, well, there's two questions hidden here, I suspect, Uh, Cody. One is, should we work less hours than we do? And for sure, the answer probably is yes. And the other is, should we work at home more? Right? Uh, um, hybrid working. And the answer is, up to a point, yes, but we may well find that it doesn't last long, right? That in five years, 10 years, everybody will be back back in the office. Uh, the reasons for saying that are twofold. It's all very well having hybrid working, but only some people can work at home, right? You have to remember there's a whole bunch of people in any business who have to turn up day after day after day, whether they like it or not. And they tend to be the more poorly paid people at the bottom of the pile. So the doorkeepers, the receptionists, the people who sweep the floor, make the sandwiches in the canteen, those kind of people, the nurses, the teachers, they can't work from home. They have to turn up. It's it's the rich and highly paid that can afford to work from home in the hybrid uh, world, and and that is divisive. And you know you need to think carefully about it. But that's the kind of minor side, I think, from the fact that history tells us uh, that hybrid working doesn't necessarily always work. Now, I come from an environment as an academic where hybrid working is the norm right, for academic staff, lecturers and and faculty and so on. And we work at home when we want some peace and quiet (laughs) from students uh, uh, to get on with our research. So people tend to come in for when they need to come in to see students, to lecture, to do whatever, do stuff in the lab whenever they need it. And then if they want to get their head down and really get some writing done or or something like that, then then they'll work at home where they're not going to be interrupted. So I well kind of recognize the advantages of doing this. And of course, it saves you 
the big commute, which is the big cost in most people's lives, it's draining. And if you have family, it's great because you can take the kids to work and uh, school in the morning and pick them up and uh, have a game of golf at lunchtime or whatever it may be to, to break your day up. These are lots of advantages. But we've tried this at least twice before. So in the 1990s, a lot of big companies decided they could downsize their footprint in expensive real estate in big city centers like London or New York by just giving their staff a laptop, sending them off to their country cottages um, and say, just come in when you need to. And then we can have a much, much smaller building and it's, it's going to save us an absolute fortune in the rent we pay to um, some uh, wealthy landlord in, in the city centre. Because most of these buildings are not owned by the companies that inhabit them, they're rented. It didn't last long. It lasted about five years and they gave up. People started drifting back in. Uh, sometime, I, there's a nice example I always cite. Um, and this was sort of around about the mid 2000s. Uh, I was at a, a, a workshop on homeworking, in fact, as it was then called. And there were two guys from a big multinational who talked about their experience. And they had three big campuses that were kind of 30 miles or so apart. They were quite close together, but too far to walk, if you see what I mean. Um, and they decided this was very silly. And um, you know, they, they, they just haphazardly grown up like that. Um, uh, they, the best thing to do was to uh, knock them all down or sell the land off and build a new purpose-built campus for all three uh, headquarters buildings, because this was the, the big headquarters uh, uh, campuses. Uh, so they spent a lot of, invested a lot of time in preparing everybody for it because the deal was, you know, we'll make uh, uh, your life at work uh, very pleasant we'll put in gyms boutique shops um cafes um, whatever uh um uh michelin star restaurants you know really the best stuff you can get to make your 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 time at work uh, a pleasant experience but you will all be hot desking uh, so here's a computer go home work at home when you need to come in for a meeting come in um, and uh, uh, um, your hot desk. And they thought, well, the people are going to complain about this, the old people uh, who are going to say, well, what about my you know, uh, enormous office with the six-inch pile carpet and the expensive drinks cabinet filled with you know, rare Scotch whiskies or whatever um, in the corner? Uh, and they found exactly the opposite. The, the old folk went, whoopee! <laughs> Thank goodness for that. I'll, uh, I'll, that. That's absolutely perfect. The people that complained bitterly about it were the young uh, newcomers in their 20s and early 30s who said, hang on a minute, what do you mean not come into work? We come into work to see our friends. That's the only reason we come into work, because that's where our friends are based. You're basically ruining our social life. And they had just not thought about this at all. So I think there will be a kind of drift back to, 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 to work. I mean, maybe not completely. Maybe people who can will do, you know, some time a day or something a week um, at home simply because it reduces the costs of commuting and the stress of, of commuting and so on. But there is a danger to this. And this has been highlighted by 
projects that have looked at published papers, and we've done one, um, uh, looked at the amount of um, activity that goes on in the context of working at home. So it exploited the pan. Both of these studies exploited the pandemic. Uh, one, I think, was by Microsoft on their own uh, uh, staff. And the one we did was was looking at a um, an entire um, uh, university in, in, in the US. And what they both showed was that what you lost by working at home were the casual contacts that you make kind of in meetings, face-to-face meetings, committee meetings, one kind or another, or over the coffee machine or the water cooler, what have you. Uh, the, the interactions increased with the people in your lab, in the case, uh, our case study, but they decreased dramatically with people from other labs and other departments in, in the, on the campus when, when you weren't able to actually be there in person. Um, and secondarily, and this came out of the Microsoft, uh, I think it was Microsoft anyway, um, study, was the amount of time you spent in online meetings increased dramatically. And in fact, you ended up wasting far more time working from home uh, by constantly being in online meetings when you could have just walked uh, 50 yards down the corridor and knocked on somebody's door or something or bumped into them in the cafeteria maybe uh, and dealt with it in five minutes. So so it was actually much more costly for most people to um, uh, be working from home than, than working uh, in, in the lab, as they say. Hey, Cody here. I'm going to keep this short and sweet, but this interlude goes on for another one minute and 30 seconds if you just want to skip through it. If you have not already, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter at themeaninglab.com. If you like this episode, I promise you will like the rest of my work and the Substack newsletter is the best way to keep up to date with all of that. I try to improve just a little bit every week on the quality of these podcast episodes and each weekly post features the most interesting idea that I could find which gives a cognitive science perspective on the pursuit of meaning in work, life, and relationships. Of course, if you buy a premium subscription, that's a huge help to me, and I really appreciate it, like a lot. But even just subscribing does a lot to support me in my work. The number of free subscriptions is the single most important number I track to see how my platform is growing, which in turn helps me get better guests and more opportunities in the future. More people on there also means I get more feedback and I can see which ideas are landing and which ones aren't. So yeah, please check it out. I put out new podcast episodes every Tuesday, new posts every Friday. If you subscribe to the Substack newsletter, you'll get all of those right to your email inbox. Again, you can find that feed at themeaninglab.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. So I want to ask a question about maybe a little bit more technical aspect of some of this stuff. And I think the the thing that I'm thinking about here is that, so there's two very famous ideas in 
social science and our understanding of social lives. One of them is, is Dunbar's number that there's 150 people, you know, uh, in your, in your sort of immediate social network that you can maintain stable relationships with. And then there's the strength of weak ties by Mark Granovetter, um, who's also been on this show and is someone whose work I admire a lot. And, you know, this is the idea that you have strong ties, you have weak ties, uh, you have a lot more weak ties than strong ties. They serve different functions. And, you know, in, in particular, you know, the, the classical perspective from, from Granovetter is that, well, you get your information from the weak ties. You learn about jobs, et cetera. And this comes together in your, your own work. Uh, I think pretty much everyone, you know, has heard of Dunbar's number at some point or another. Uh, but maybe not as much uh, is it well understood the interaction between these two ideas. And uh, in, in particular, there's, there's a, a way that you have of, of framing it. I don't know if this is the official name for it. I call it Dunbar's Concentric Circles. Um, but uh, could you maybe get into that a little bit and, and how that 150 number can be modulated north and south depending on kind of the striation of relationship that you're looking at? Okay, so, so these are what are known as the circles of friendship or the layers of friendship, uh, or sometimes as a Dunbar graph, the graph meaning um, uh, the technical sense in, in topology and in, in mathematics. Well, I like, I um, like my name, so. <laughs> we'll stick with yours. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> uh, you have to think essentially of your social world as kind of like the ripples on a pond where you throw a stone in. So you can imagine yourself as the stone uh, and you, you're sort of surrounded by a series of waves or ripples expanding outwards from you. And, and these ripples are very small near to you, but very high. So, so their, their amplitude is high. But as they go further and further out, the size of the circle increases, but the height of the wave decreases until eventually, of course, it, it finally dies out altogether. So our social world actually consists of a series of layers of friendship or circles uh, exactly like that. And these circles have a very specific relationship to each other in terms of their sizes. So if you count them cumulatively, so that each circle includes the people who are in, on the circle inside it, these layers occur at 1.5, 5, 15, 50, 150, 500, 1,500, and 5,000. So it appears to be nothing beyond 5,000 because 5,000 appears to define the number of faces that you recognize. You don't necessarily know who they are, but you just know you've seen them before. So it's demarcate strangers from non-strangers, and that appears to occur at 5,000. The important layers are obviously from 150 in because that's your meaningful social world. And that's where most of your social effort is put. Um, now, each of these layers, um, the number clearly increases in size as you go out, but the emotional quality of those relationships and the time you devote to the people in those layers decreases as you go out through, through the layers and pass out beyond the 150. Um, where the two concepts, the Dunbar circles and the Granovetta uh, conception kind of interact is simply that um, the, where the distinction between weak and strong ties um, lie. So your weak ties are rather more casual relationships, and Granovetta suggested they were the way you got most of your information about 
useful things to know about the world in which you live. Where are the good supermarket deals? Where there's, where's the cheapest gas this week? Um, uh, where, you know, who's the, the, the new and exciting stand-up comic uh, coming to town? What, you know, what are the best films out this week to go and see? All these kinds of bits of information. They come from somewhere out there in the outer reaches of the social circles. And uh, inside, at some point, there are these strong ties, which are the ones that are really important for you. And there's, it's never been entirely clear where these... Uh, where the distinction lies, because Mark Granovetter never really said um, uh, particularly, although several people have tried to identify where they lie. Um, we've tried that looking at the way in which networks work um, in terms of information flows through the network. Uh, and it seems that possibly the key breakpoint is at about 50 so the people that lie in the 50 layer to you um, are the ones you have the strongest emotional ties to and uh, you devote most time to. And those are the ones that you might think of as your meaningful relationships. And anything beyond running out through the remaining 100, 100 people that make up your 150 circle and then beyond that into the 500 circle and the 1500 circle, uh, those are your weak ties. Now, most of these numbers also, it turns out, correspond to natural grouping sizes in small-scale societies. So the, the layer at 1,500 right on the outside uh, is the typical size of tribes in, in small-scale societies. And they tend to correspond to people who you kind of know who they are and you can put a name to their their picture, their face, as it were, but you perhaps don't know that much about them, but you know they belong to your tribe, if you like. Um, the 1500 layer, we always call the layer of acquaintances. So a lot of those people you work with will be in that layer. You would kind of uh, go for a beer with them, uh, go out for a meal with them or something like that, but you kind of wouldn't invite them to your big once-in-a-lifetime Party. So I, the, the, the layer that that corresponds to is that 150 layer, your Dunbar number, properly speaking. And that's what I call your kind of bar mitzvah, wedding and funeral layer, because they're the people that feel a sense of obligation to you. They will turn up uh, out of that sense of obligation um, to, uh, um, you know, this once in a lifetime event of yours. Uh, if it's your funeral, well, I guess you won't know, but, uh, you know, be assured they'll come because of how they feel about you. Um, and those kind of, they're more tr transient relationships in some sense, uh, although actually a lot of your extended family sit in the, the uh, circle between 50 and 150 because you don't have to invest so much in them to keep them there. Beyond the 150, relationships do become much more explicitly transactional. So we always define the 150 layer in terms of how altruistic you would be to somebody. So you will, somebody in the 150 layer asks you to do them a favor, you will probably say yes, and you won't be too bothered if they don't pay you back. Although if they keep doing it and keep not paying you back, you may get a bit grumpy about it. But in general, you'll kind of just say yes. Out beyond the 150, though, relationships do seem to become more transactional. So you kind of go, I'll do it if you 
pay me back if you do me a favor some other time. Um, those kind of uh, uh, arrangements, if you like. So the layers do differ in their quality. Um, they do differ in their meaningfulness. And um, uh, the weak, strong dimension is simply one of those dimensions by which your expanded circle of um, acquaintances, generally speaking, um, uh, can be defined. I mean, it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the story, really, than being completely orthogonal to it. You alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to ask you, what is the difference between a strong romantic relationship and a strong friendship relationship like we've been talking okay. about? A, a platonic friendship, you might uh, use the, the, other, the term that, that might be used, or slightly old-fashioned term, perhaps. Um, not a lot. Uh, in terms of emotional content, they seem to be very similar. Obviously, romantic relationships tend to have a sexual component to them, which is, by and large, absent in, the, in, in platonic friendships. Um, platonic friendships tend to be... Um, unique in the sense that you only have one person in that category. And that's why you have this innermost layer at one and a half. Um, and it's kind of one and a half. People often have often said when I said there's another layer at one and a half, how can you have one and a half relationships? Well, the answer is obvious. There are two different phenotypes in the world of people. And one of them has two intimate friends and the other has only one. And they're called males and females. Uh, and what you find is that women in particular commonly have a best friend forever who's another woman, same-sex relationship, best friend, as well as a romantic partner. Occasionally, about 15% of the time, there'll be another male, a male rather than a female, but most of them typically a female. The converse is sort of true for the guys. They will tend to have a male best friend, sometimes a female best friend. But the quality of those relationships is very, very different to the quality of best friends that you find, best friends forever, that you find in women. They're much more casual. And they tend to have been around a long, lot longer. Um, they, they tend to date back to kind of high school period, college period. You know, it, it, if you look at people in their mid-40s, you know, yes, I've known them since, you know, since we were at school together. That's my best friend. Whereas women's best friends... Platonic friends tend to be much more recent. They will only they have a high relatively high turnover in the sense that romantic relationships also have a high, high turnover. So they're very fragile in that sense, in that they're based on deep trust and therefore you tolerate um, infringements of that trust uh, until it happens once too often and you've had enough and then that's it. And then you have a catastrophic breakdown. Whereas in general, other kinds of friends and men's best friends in this sense tend to just drift apart. Um, the difference between those closer friends, though, and this is going beyond the best friends forever, that inner circle of uh, shoulders to cry on friends, is that they are the kind of friendships, although established early in life, i.e. T- late teenage, early 20s, um, you can drift apart 
but you can meet up again and pick up exactly where you left off. This, the relationship seems to be ground in stone, and that's very unusual because most other friendships for both men and women, um, not seeing somebody causes the friendship, as I mentioned earlier, just to kind of decay in quality and eventually just drop off the end of your social world altogether. Effectively. So there are important differences, but those women's best friends forever, BFFs as they're commonly known, really are a very important part of their social environment, and nearly all women have them. Um, they're absolutely, whether or not you have one, is absolutely constant across life, uh, possibly depends on your personality a bit, so uh, maybe some people are predisposed not to have them. If they don't have them, they don't have them ever. Um, but as I said, most women have them, and the proportion that a female rather than male is absolutely constant across life. It doesn't budge even an iota, despite the fact that they probably only last 10 or 15 years as individual relationships. There's one or two larger topics that I want to touch on before we end up here. And the first one is the relationship between debt and friendship. So uh, I'll just sort of frame this a little bit, but this is one of the, the primary arguments made in David Graeber's book, Debt. And I've, I've always found it really beautiful. So it's, you know, if I look at my own life, the people who I owe the greatest debt to, whether that's financially or emotionally or, or what have you, uh, it's the people I love the most, right? It's, it's my mom and dad, uh, my partner, Haley. Um, and it, Graeber's argument is that debts are a symbol of the intention to continue a relationship. And I'm sure other people have made that argument. That's where I'm familiar with it from. Um, and uh, the only people that you really plan to go back and pay, repay in full are people with whom you have no intention of interacting again. So I actually remember a story. I don't remember where I heard it. It was some sort of podcast. I, I'd have to go back and find it. But it's about a father uh, who, when his son turned 18, he handed him essentially an itemized receipt of all the money the father had spent on him while he was growing up. And for many years, the son worked off the debts and repaid it in full. And they never spoke again. And uh, so debt is this tangible financial commitment um, as my friend uh, Owen McCauley said, to bring someone into your community. And I love that. Uh, does that sort of square with, with, with how you understand and all this? What, what role do you think that plays? <laughs> no, uh, it's absolutely uh, perfect. Um, uh, I, I, I might give it a slightly different twist in the sense of saying uh, those people within that 150 circle are the people you don't worry if they or that you don't worry so much if they don't pay you back for a favor, right? So that's the debt bit. And the closer you come into you, uh, those closer relationships are also the longest lasting ones. They're the ones which, as you pointed out in, in your example, they accumulate the biggest debts, but also they're the ones where the creditor worries least about the debt being paid. There is an implicit kind of, I'll do the same for you, should it ever be necessary. But we kind of, on the whole, don't, I mean, we know that that's the case. That's why we're prepared to in, invest in them so heavily, as it were. 
um, uh, be, uh, be, be, and it's because we know them well and we've been around, we have this emotional attachment to them. Um, so, you know, that's okay. And uh, um, that fits well. And then, as I say, said earlier, beyond the 150 layer, that's where relationships start to become more transactional. They're kind of becoming more transactional as you go out through the layers. The outer layer that goes out 150, you're starting to think, you know, this is your second cousin, um, Jemima, you know, and you kind of go when she says, can you lend me $50? You kind of go, well, eh, eh, I did lend you $50 last time and you never repaid it, but okay, this is the last time. <laughs> it become starting to get a bit transactional out there. But once you pass that 150 layer, it's totally transactional. You, you expect to uh, be paid uh, paid back. And we think probably that's because in small-scale traditional societies, that 150 layer really is extended family, completely extended, made up of extended family. Everybody who lives in your village in those kind of societies is extended family, and that's the typical village size in small-scale societies. Um, the uh, Yeah, so anyway, that, 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 you know, I, I would agree entirely with that description of it, um, I, I'd actually add that we invest, we did a study of this actually once, a, a, a kind of online study, uh, and showed that people invest more heavily in the people that they expect to get more help from. Right. So um, this is exactly what we kind of see with the people in the inner circles you invest more time in. We expressed it in the study. So it's a questionnaire type study in terms of who do you expect to get most help from, emotional help, financial help, social help, whatever, in the course of the next few years, should should you need it? Who would you expect to step up to the plate and, and, and do this for you? And it correlates very highly with the time you invest in them. But I don't think you're investing in them in order to uh, persuade them to give you this help. I think it's slightly more complicated than that, in that you create these relationships, yes, uh, in order to have these people who will help you out should you need it, but you're getting lots of benefits in terms of friends along the way, friendship along the way. Um, but the reason they are willing to do that is because of the mutual bond that you've created by engaging with them in to such an extent. Right? It's the emotional sense of belonging and, and, and friendship that creates the willingness, the sense of obligation uh, in the other person to, to kind of step up to the plate and, and, and um, uh, give you the help when you, when you pick you up, uh, when you've fallen down, all this kind of stuff. Um, rather than it being so transactional. It's bi-directional because they're also expecting the same from you. They just know it. It's it's, it's not an expectation in an economic sense. Hang on a minute. I bought you 50 beers. How, how come you haven't lent me $100? Uh, it's just an, an intuitive, I know that they, that they will do you know agree to do me a favor when i when i when i need some help they're not going to even question it it's that sense um uh, as to how it works i think there's one more thing that i want to ask you about here since we're in the the last 10 minutes and i really appreciate you you giving your time to this but this is something that you've written about and it's the social function of alcohol 
And so this, this is definitely something that, that I've thought about um, personally. And, you know, I think, I think there's really something here about alcohol working in two ways to facilitate conversations. And the first one is sort of neurochemical, neurobiological, where people are more inclined to talk about personal matters. They're more forthcoming, less guarded. Uh, we know alcohol uh, reduces inhibitions. Uh, okay. And the other thing is, is, is more social. It's in terms of, of creating space. So bars, taverns, pubs, um, even, you know, you could put restaurants in there. These are where we go to socialize. And these are the things that we have a society, for whatever reason, have said, this is where we're going to do socializing and only socializing. We're not really going to have any other functionality here. And it's built around alcoholic beverages. So yeah, I'm 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 wondering, does that square with with your thinking on the matter? Uh, what, what would you add to that? How do you how do you conceptualize the social function of alcohol? So <clears throat> this really all goes back to the neurobiological underpinnings of friendship in monkeys generally, monkeys and apes generally, and, and therefore ourselves. And that is the endorphin system in the brain. So the endorphin system is part of the brain's pain management system. Uh, monkeys and apes and ourselves trigger it by soft touch, by light, slow stroking, because of this unique neural system in the in the skin, uh, which responds only to light, slow stroking. It's exactly three centimeters a second, right? The hand movement is three centimeters a second. If you, if you stroke faster than that or slower than that, it doesn't trigger this system. But if you get it right, it goes straight up, the signal goes straight up to the brain, triggers the endorphin system, makes you feel very warm and comfortable and, and uh, trusting in the person you're doing this with. Now, the problem with that is it's very intimate, personalized. We still don't, or well, monkeys and apes really don't groom with more than one person at a time. We don't, and I invite you, if you don't believe me, to go and try cuddling with two different people at the same time in the back row of the cinema. And I'll bet you anything you like that within 10 minutes, one of them will have left somewhat crossly because you haven't been paying them enough attention. Right? That sense, it's very intimate. So what we've had to do in order to exploit this bonding mechanism as we've increased group size beyond the size typical of monkey snakes is find other ways of triggering the endorphin system without involving soft touch, without involving that physical intimacy. And the way we've done that is through laughter, singing, dancing, the rituals of religion, feasting, eating together socially, drinking alcohol together socially, and storytelling. All of these we've shown trigger the endorphin system. All of them increase the sense of bonding. So alcohol, turns out, is an extremely good trigger of the endorphin system. It's, um, uh, in fact, if you go to alcoholics clinic, uh, what they give you is endorphin blockers to uh, get wean you off it. Um, uh, but if, for whatever reason, a lot of these kind of psychotropic drugs like alcohol uh, seem to work through the endorphin system. We think that endorphins are actually at the root of trance in meditation and other trance dance kind of uh, contexts in, in small scale religions. Um, Oh, sometimes in big scale religions of the happy, happy kind. Um, uh, I actually think that what you're doing when you clap at the end of a concert or at the end of a, uh, a brilliant lecture that you get from 
from your your faculty at, at university. Uh, the, re- the reason you clap is to self-trigger the endorphin system and you, you feel absolutely wonderful after you've clapped. You feel much more grumpy if you haven't clapped at the end of <laughs> the, 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 the concert, if you like. Um, uh, 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 it just gives you, you can feel it in the warmth that, that you're beginning to feel as, as your hands are, uh, are being beaten <laughs> together uh producing pain so they feel a bit sore actually but it creates a sense of warmth um so i think all these things we've found that they're, they're, they're cultural they're not kind of well with the possible exception of laughter they're not genetically underpinned except in the sense that these behaviors trigger the endorphin system so alcohol then plays this role it is it, alcohol seems to work particularly well um uh, and that's probably why it's sort of nearly universal. But other things can work. There's not been tested, but I'm pretty, my intuition is that a lot of these other astringent type drinks like strong coffee and the like can also have uh, triggered the endorphin system and will work quite well. So a cafe environment where of the kind, a street cafe environment of the kind you find in many Mediterranean cultures and so on. Um, uh, or, or similar in that sense to a pub that you might find in in sort of northern Europe or, or elsewhere. Um, <clears throat> there are social environments um, where you can meet up with the other uh, members of your community and even meet new people and stuff. And and uh, part and parcel of the ritual there is, let's say, coffee in one case um, and uh, alcoholic uh, drinks in the other case. But these 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 facilitate uh, social interactions, partly through creating this sense of relaxation and trust and and warmth that are produced by the endorphin system. But also, as you mentioned, partly because things like alcohol reduce the inhibitions that you have about talking to strangers, so it makes you more social in that sense. Of course, nothing comes for free in life, you know, or in biology. Uh, everything that is good for you is bad if you have too much. And that's the problem with alcohol. Just as a bit of salt is good for you, too much salt is bad for you. So a glass or two of uh, uh, red wine or whatever it may be your your preference is good for you. uh, And too much of it is not good for you. Um, But the benefits of the endorphin system are that they seem to trigger the endorphins, uh, sorry, the immune system. They As I sometimes describe it, they tune up the immune system. They they trigger the release of natural killer cells. And that's kind of where probably the health benefits of friendship come from, because natural killer cells particularly target viruses and some cancers, apparently. So, you know, you can see... You know, if if that's what the endorphin system is doing, as well as kind of making you feel happy and less depressed in in the psychological sense, improving your psychological well-being, it's also having a physical benefit in terms of of counteracting some of the various uh, slings and arrows that the world insists on throwing at us in the form of physical illnesses. Friendship is good stuff. So there are about 500 more questions I could ask you about friendship. Um, but since you've been very generous with your time, I'll, I'll just leave it to the final one. Uh, what are three books that have most influenced the way you think? 
Oh, I, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I suppose at some level, one kind of has to say things like Darwin and, and the like, who's a very good read, I have to say, is an extremely good writer. But actually, I'm going to point in a slightly different direction uh, in terms of influenced uh, me uh, uh, and offer you the following three. One is a, a Victorian kind of spoof um, uh, not too many people know about it. It's called Flatland, and it was written by um, uh, uh, a couple of uh, 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 a guy uh, masquerading uh, as under the pseudonym A Square. And what it is is a kind of spoof on hierarchies in society. Um, so it imagines the world consists of um, uh, different kinds of uh, dimensions. So um uh, you you're you're a two-dimensional person a line and you enter into this world where there are one-dimensional people dots or there are three-dimensional people cubes um uh, and and you're trying to sort of negotiate this and it was a kind of spoof on victorian it's a victorian book late late 1880s i think um uh spoof on victorian hierarchical cultures posh folk at the top and the working classes at the bottom. But it's also a reminder, I think, of the importance of seeing the world and other cultures within their own terms. It, it's a reminder that, you know, your your particular viewpoint or your particular culture is not necessarily the ultimate um, uh, good thing that, that uh, you know, when you encounter other, other cultures, A, it's, it's very beneficial to you. And I grew up in a very multicultural environment, extremely multicultural environment. Um, and I'm a, a bilingual uh, speaker of English and Kiswahili as a result of that. Um, but, uh, uh, um, you know, you should take other cultures at face value and enjoy them, get to know them and understand them in this sense of that a, 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 a square would have to understand a cubic world or a uh, in a sort of one-dimensional world um, uh, in order to understand the, the environment it, it comes in. And I guess uh, as a second book, I, I'm going to pick uh, T.S. Eliot's poetry because I was besotted with this as a, as a late teenager. I actually studied Eliot at, uh, at high school uh, um, uh, for my high school, final high school exams, A-levels as we call them here. And I think he's just the most amazing poet uh, who ever came to uh, uh, our way in many ways. Immensely complex, immensely well-read, and immensely deep. And as the last choice, I'm actually going to pick something I'm sure nobody's ever heard of. It's the Irish writer Brendan Behan, his, his uh, semi-autobiographical book, Hold Your Own and Have Another. And it just has that Irish flow and fun uh sense of fun and and life is is, is a gas as the, as the, as the saying goes um it's just wonderfully well written little vignettes on his experiences in life it's a great guy he died very young uh, at the age of 41 rather about the same age actually as the other greatest poet ever uh, in many ways <laughs> uh, it, uh, um but less prol prolific because he died young uh, namely um uh, Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet, um, uh, whom I might otherwise have included, actually, because his sense of observation is absolutely extraordinary. T.S. Eliot is more internal and intellectualizing, looking at himself. Um, 
Dylan Thomas is is observations on the foibles of of other people is just unbelievable. And his way with words is just uh, beautiful. It's absolutely fantastic stuff. So you get four for the price of one. But... Those are uh, I love those. That's that, that's such a great list. Uh, Robin Dunbar, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Uh, you're very welcome. It's been great fun. That was my conversation with Robin Dunbar. I hope you enjoyed. Well, a happy Valentine's Day to everyone listening out there. I really appreciate you taking time to engage with my work. If you want to follow along with everything that I do, including my podcast and my writing, the best way to do that is through my Substack newsletter. You can find that at themeaninglab.com. And I really do appreciate the support. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back here next week with another episode of The Meaning Lab Podcast. <laughs>